You're listening to The Brian and Gina Show, the official podcast of LA Magazine. Here are your hosts, Brian and Gina. Hello and welcome to The Brian and Gina Show, the official podcast of Los Angeles Magazine. I'm Brian Bishop. I'm Gina Grad. And we welcome in the studio Hollywood screenwriter Richard Wink. Richard, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. My favorite magazine of all time when I first moved out here was my Bible. And now I'm glad you guys are back. So fantastic. Yeah. Us too. Thank you. Um, you have a movie that is out right now, but you have so many other movies under your belt. Like permission in advance to talk about all of it. You have permission. I cannot forget anything. I will uh, comment on it. <laughs> <laughs> so let me let me start the interview out on a on a great note. Richard, I think you and I go way back. So I'm gonna go on a limb here. I was not able to verify this beforehand, but believe me, I tried. But uh, I'm gonna ask you. I went to USC uh, in the late '90s, and I, I took a class called 466, which is theatrical film symposium, hosted by or hosted. Uh, it was hosted, but it was taught by Leonard Maltin, the film critic. Oh yes, and Leonard. Leonard would have first run movies uh, and the people who created them, sometimes actors, sometimes directors, sometimes sound designers, you know, producers, all manner of uh, people who are involved. And we watched your movie, Just the Ticket. And this was, this was spring of 99. And I remember very well that Andy Garcia was there. Yes. I think you were there as well. Can you confirm this? I confirm that. Yes. He was my partner. Yes. Yes. Richard, I was in the audience that day watching uh, not just the movie, but your talk with Leonard afterwards. What a small world. Yeah, that was fun. That was a good time. So Just the Ticket is uh, it's a movie from 1999 about Andy Garcia, who's a ticket scalper, and he's going to make his big score. The Pope's coming to town, right? He's going to sell like like tickets. Yeah, yeah, secondary market tickets. This is before, you know, StubHub. Yeah. Uh, he's going to sell secondary market tickets to like the Pope's yeah, at, at like Yankee Stadium or it's something. A, it's a cautionary tale. Yes. Well, you know, it's before cell phones and everything. So, you know, it's uh, uh, actually based on a real person that I had roomed with in New York. And uh, um, I, I uh, became very close friends. He's still my best friend, Andy Garcia. Uh, our kids went to the same school. Oh. Uh, interestingly enough, we both were sitting watching our kids play and talking about the movies we really want to make. Mine was called The Scalper at the time, and um, Andy was uh, The Lost City, um, the Cuban movie. Uh-huh. Made. So yes. we both kind of commiserated, and we both kind of had a, a wish that we could kind of convince people to, to fund them. And I, I mentioned that maybe we should shoot some footage. Um, and to show them what, what it would look like. And he said, well, I'm down for that. And um, so uh, he was doing Black Rain at the time. Yes. The Ridley Scott movie. He had, he had right? Godfather, the can, Godfather 3 in the can. And uh, he got Ridley, who I knew, I was working with, um, to give us a cameraman and footage, you know, uh, film and, and the whole thing. And we went out for 24 hours and shot footage of just the ticket, which it turned out to be. Um, and the, the, the one thing I would have to say is that uh, on that day that we had planned to go shoot this test footage um, was the day Andy got nominated for an Academy Award. Oh, and my God. So, you know, oh. I no, but on the day you get nominated, you have to go do oh, yeah. global press. press. Yeah. So I was sitting downtown at 6 a.m., 
uh, in LA uh, when my uh, line producer, Terry Benedict said, uh, we're not going to be able to shoot today because Andy's got to do this thing. And uh, we're kind of depressed until Andy's car rolled around the corner, um, got out and we shot the entire day. And as we drove home together, his phone was blowing up in the car. And that was the day's the first phone, uh, uh, car phones. And yep, yep. like, where the hell have you been? And, uh, he said, I was out making a movie. And, uh, that's when I knew that I had a, um, a best friend for life and a, and a, and a real cinephile. And, um, that footage got the movie made eventually. So. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. What? That's great. When did Andy McDowell come on board? When, when did you uh, get uh, get her involved? Well, you know, we, we had, you know, we're, we financed the movie completely through foreign money, you know, foreign. Huh? Sales. So there was a list of people and she was at the top. Um, and uh, we thought, well, there's no way she would do it. But um, uh, we sent her the script. I sent her a note and she uh, came aboard and she was. She joined us like we, like Andy joined us, you know, just, you know, full in. We shot uh, 32 days and 57 locations in New York without a permit. So, oh, my God. It was a great, great uh, learning experience. What a time. You can't, you can't replicate that. Andy Garcia not having his off a cell phone because it's 1998 right. or whatever it is. Uh, and, uh, you know, shooting guerrilla style in New York. This is, uh, you know, you can't do, do that again. No, 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 no. I don't think so. Um, but you have to have Andy Garcia who's willing yeah. to get in his car at 6 a.m. and drive downtown while he should be fed for. <laughs> nominated for Academy Award. Well, and and like you said, that's how you knew you had a true cinephile. You he should have been um lapping up his glory and you know having compliments showered upon him, but he needed to go shoot some renegade footage. He he wanted it. He gave his word and he showed up and um <sighs> we've been um like this ever since. So it's been that's incredible. Yeah. yeah, we we have so many movies to get to, not least to mention Equalizer three, which oh nothing is you know taking multiple theaters by storm. But I also wanted you to know that you and I go back a oh, cool. longer. You and I go back long. Brian wishes he went back this far with you. Okay. Um. So. True or false, in 1982, you were director John Huston's assistant on the movie Annie. I was. Yes, I was. Okay. So that movie, Annie, shaped not just my childhood, but most little girls' childhoods in yeah. the 80s. I know every word and need to know everything you know about um, uh, Anne Ranking and uh, Albert Finney and uh, Bernadette Peters and uh, Aileen Quinn. And Carol Burnett. And- of course. Yes. And Tom and Tim Tim Curry. Tim Curry and, and Jeffrey Holder and oh. Yes. So well That's but, your connection. You saw a movie of his in nineteen eighty two. And he was the assistant to the director, but I We really, shared time in the USC <laughs> film. But school. I mean, what a I mean, how random. I mean, when I when I came across I was like, wait, 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 am I reading that right? Like, how did you even get that? I what is what, your origin story? Yeah, well, I was in New York working for um Michael Stewart, who was, I was a gopher uh, assistant, personal assistant gopher for Michael Stewart, who was the, who was the most successful, greatest librettist in Broadway history. He wrote Bye Bye Birdie, Carnival, Hello Dolly, 42nd Street, Barnum. Oh, what? Yeah. And, and, uh, um, I was working for him running around doing, uh, you know, various odd jobs. 
And um, he, the director of Barnum, which he was writing at the time, was Joe wow. Lake, who became executive producer of Annie. Um, so uh, Mike uh, insisted that he hire me in some capacity. So I was hired as a PA um, and as a general PA. Sure. And uh, uh, I met John. I met uh, Arlene Phillips, who was the choreographer, who was uh, so essential to the movie. And um, unfortunately, early, like literally a week or two into the pre-production, um, John's assistant, um, Gladys Hill, who was his co-writer on Man Who Would Be King, died. And oh. needed somebody to facilitate uh, uh, that job. So I raised my hand quickly. Um, it was a, you know, it was kind of like going to graduate school, uh, to be a director. Cause that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a director. Um, so, um, I, 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 you know, I went to his trailer and I stood by his side and I worked with Arlene and him and the whole thing. And it was just, uh, it's kind of like a dream. And when I look back at it, because it was, uh, you know, no one gets to do that. And, no. you know, Mark was producing it and he would come in and he would play me the new songs and ask me oh if I thought they were good. And it was like, you know, it was one of those, one of those kismet things, the serendipitous things that happen to you. And you just go, this is, you know, this is where I was supposed to be. Carol Sobieski, who was the off, you know, the screenwriter took me under her wing. Cause oh I was my God. feeling scripts from Ray Stark's office to, to read, you know, that was on the shelf and she caught me and she said, huh. Oh, I'm not going to tell, but you know, you have to, you know, you, I'll, I'll teach you how to, you know, how this works. So it was a great, uh, PhD in, 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 in wow. the, machinations of filmmaking yeah trial by fire it's not like you had any experience and you know you couldn't ask for any you know was i was spoiled because there was not a single person on that on that film that wasn't nice and collaborative and um and ryan king was just beautiful and, and and i call foul sir I call foul. I I, I want to believe you, but you have that many Broadway stars chewing that much scenery at one time. You got to tell me about the blowups. No blowups. You know, you know, I'm telling you, there was just it was just I think it was because of John and Arlene that that everybody was just, you know, uh, um, all on the same page. It's wow. one. Of the, I, I guess maybe if if there was a bunch of blowups and a bunch of drama, you know, would have changed how I looked at, at, at movies, oh, but, but, yeah. you know, I, on my wall, I still have a picture of Anne on, in, on stage at, uh, um, uh, where the, where the, um, at, uh, you know, at the, at the big theater there, uh, let's go to the movies. Yeah. That one. Yeah. All by yourself and doing a thing. And oh I, my God. And th- that's the, between that and we got Annie, I mean, she must be the reason that there were ever new songs put into that show. Yeah. And she was, and, um, that and Carol Burnett and, yeah. uh, was, you couldn't ask for someone nicer <sighs> or pleasant and more professional. And, uh, it was just, and Carol Burnett had to ride an elephant too. That was my favorite. That's right. Yeah. Uh, she rode an elephant. You know, I, I, you, know you, you don't get those experiences really. <laughs> and there I was watching it like this was normal. So, <laughs> and I know we have so many things to talk about. I just, I just have to know because when else am I going to be able to ask you this? Aileen Quinn is Aileen or Eileen? Aileen. Yeah, she was a little kid 
yeah. with all these powerhouses. Um, any any tantrums or she was cool. No, I, the opposite. Um, she was <laughs> such a professional. All the all the girls. She was Annie Brian. She was Annie. Got it. <laughs> all the girls uh, in the orphanage were fantastic. They were oh. kids. They acted like kids. Um, she was delightful. Again, on my wall, I have a picture of her and my grandfather hugging each other in her trailer because he came to visit. Uh, I, I, again, I, it's just one of those things that you just you can't make up and it uh, doesn't happen. Um, but at that particular point in time, it was just everybody was just delightful. Oh, you've you have delighted baby Gina to no end. <laughs> Good. Seriously. I cleared all that up. So thank you. Well, should we move ahead a few decades, Brian? You think? Sure. I'm curious, actually. So as a as a screenwriter, you know, people might not be aware, like when you look at a screenwriter's like IMDB, right? Yes. Like you'll see a number of movies, but it's not indicative of all the movies they've worked on. Like, yeah. you know, sometimes worked on a lot. You yes. know, if you're the director, you're going to get credit as the director. But you probably worked on a number of movies in your career, you know, punching up this or rewriting that or whatever that you just, you know, the the, the rules of the guild are you don't get credit for it. What, how does that work? Well, um, I, I've done a couple. Um, I'm, it's not my favorite thing to do. I, I'm a big page one guy. So, um, but, and I, I got fired off a couple of movies and they're not fired, but, but, you know, uh, chastised for, for mm. too much in the script. Um, I worked, I worked for 17 weeks on Southpaw, for example. Um, and it wasn't, um, with Antoine Fuqua who did, you know, we did Magnificent Seven and all the equalizers. Right. Um, and I didn't do, you know, uh, change, uh, the, 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 the underlying, movie that Kurt Sutter wrote, which was great. Um, I just worked with all the actors, Jake and uh, Forrest Whitaker and um, just everybody. And for, for a while, um, nonstop with Liam Neeson, I got, I got a job and I remember getting called when I turned pages and going, you're doing too much. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's not a easy thing for me to do. I'm, I'm sort of a storyteller. So, um, I tend to start on page one and just go through it as I see it. And they don't want that. They want you to punch that up and punch that up. And I'm not sure. Not, not really. How my, I think that doesn't how much, work. Or oh, whatever. sorry, Richard. Um, Apologies for interrupting you. Yeah. I mean, I, the best story I can tell you is, um, uh, I have a, um, I guess I just got a credit on this, this Marvel movie called Craven the Hunter and, um, yes. which was interesting. Uh-huh. I, had, I was the first writer on it and, uh, it was, I knew that writing a Marvel movie was, um, you wouldn't be the only writer. That's right. what it, um, so, you know, I was going to have to crack it, uh, so to speak. And I did, I think I did. And then by the time I did, must've done three drafts of all different kinds. Right. They, the, because you, when you do a Marvel movie, you have to listen to them and they tell you, well, we want this and you have to do that and you have to do that. You have to kind of work around it. And, um, that's not sort of how I do it, but I did it as an experience. And, uh, when I finally did it, um, I, uh, I turned it in the third draft or whatever. And they said, thank you very much. We're going to bring in the Deadpool guys. (laughs) (laughs) And that was 2019. So that was the end of that and uh well, i'll never do that again um uh and then uh yeah and then and then like i didn't hear anything 
And then we, we had a test screening of the Equalizer 3 in Chicago, and the head of the studio was there, the same studio, Sony. And I asked him, I said, well, whatever happened to Craven, uh, the hunter? And he said, oh, we just finished a month of, of reshoots. And I said, oh, well, that's, that's, that's always a bad <laughs> sign. Sure, sure, sure. So I, I just let it go. And then um, how, it, how it happens is they – finish the movie and then anybody who's written on the movie um is submitted to the guild the writers guild uh to see if they 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 deserve credit right and uh, i think there were 18 writers on craven the hunter jeez and, it's like a beyonce song seriously exactly so uh, you know i didn't i didn't have anything to really do with it but i did do one thing i did take the character of Craven the Hunter, which was an unwatchable, unlikable, <laughs> impossible character to put in a movie and rewrote him to be something else, which I figured would get, I'd get fired for that. But, um, uh, they really loved it. They, the, 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 the head of the studio said, this is the best, best first 50 pages I've ever read or whatever. And, and, uh, finish the script the way you want to do it. And I did. And then I got fired. I got really, you know, like, contract was up and they they basically said we're we're moving on spot four years later they uh submit the credits and lo and behold i'm story credit and screenplay credit sharing wow. deadpool guys so i'm like well that's impossible there's 18 other guys you know so they arbitrated it and uh um that's how it ended up and oh my god sometimes you 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 do your work and if you do it right um, and you and you crack it, so to speak, um, it's hard to, to, to get past it, I guess. So it was a it was a, um, a surprise that you ended up four years later with 18 other writers that you got a credit on it. So it's a it's, really weird business in terms of that. Yeah. stuff. Yeah. And this is this is something that, you know, talk about bringing you down to earth. We see your credits and it's very glamorous and it's a very storied career. And obviously you've had a lot of success. But hearing like, you know, come in, hired gun, come be part of the family. And then it's like, who are you? Yeah, it's it is a very, very dirty business. Well, here's the thing I tell everybody who wants to be a screenwriter. You are the most important person at the start. Yeah. There's nothing that's more important than your work. After that, you're the least important person. Mm. And um, I've been fortunate that I, because I think because I started as a director, I'm very collaborative. I don't, I'm not precious about much that I write. I, I like, I see the movie. So right. director, a star, uh, uh, you know, the studio, they all, any ideas that work are, are great. So, um, so I end up on the sets of the, all the movies. Um, I sit there i watch it i comment on it i correct it i you know I, I try to correct it and i get rejected or whatever it is and um um i'm a i'm a participant in it and it's very rare for a screenwriter to to have that i've done it on i don't know maybe 10 movies i've been on yes he was looking at his wall and all of his yeah. uh, posters uh his and, imdb is printed out right yeah. Um, so, so I, I, I think that's some, somewhat of a gift and also sometimes, uh, painful because mm. you ultimately, you can say what you want to say, but they're going to make the movie they want to make at that point. Well, it's, 
It's interesting when you say you're you're collaborative and I, I could absolutely see that in your personality. And especially since you said, you know, since since you've directed. Um, but Equalizer starring one of the biggest superstars in the world yes. for, you know, how many years, how many decades, Denzel Washington. Um, I'm first wondering if you if how much. This is all I didn't go to USC film school, so these uh, questions might be a little basic, but um did, was it written with him in mind as his voice? Did you already know that? And how collaborative with him specifically did you get to be? Okay. So Richard, this- do you want, you want to take this one or should I answer this? <laughs> hey, no, go ahead. Go ahead. All right. So, um, so here's the, here's the, the story about that. Um, four years before I started writing that script, I was offered that uh, by a infamous producer who's now in prison. Um, uh, hold on. I've narrowed it down to four. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. D- don't worry. We won't mention names, but he, he basically sent me the, uh, uh, the title and the DVD with the pilot and the a list of all the episodes of the equalizer, uh, TV show show. Yeah. I that very briefly and sent it back saying it's a TV show. No, thank you. And that was that four years later. Um, uh, Todd Black and Jason Blumenthal at Escape Artist uh, re- acquired the rights and, and reached out to me while I was doing Expendables. And um, I, they called and I said, eh, you know, it's, uh, it's um, I, I, you know, no, thank you. Uh, it's a TV show. Um, and they said, well, uh, we can get the script to Denzel Washington without an offer. I said, oh, I never huh. thought. And I thought, well, if I write a script, he's going to read it. And if at the very least, I will be introduced to Denzel Washington. Yes. So I did write it with him in mind. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, I was writing the script and I had written the first 50 pages, which is basically the movie you see. And then it kind of veered off to where the studio wanted it to be some spy movie or something. And uh, I hated it. And uh, <laughs> I called the producers and I said, I have to cut these 35 pages. I have to throw them out. And they said, no, you can't do that. They're the best 35 pages in this. Yeah, I know, but it's going down a wrong road. And I think, and this is what I said. I said, um, I think Denzel's going to read the first 50 pages and love it. And then he's going to read f- page 51. He's going to throw it in the pile with the nose. Now, I don't know him at, at all. I don't know him. I just know his movies. And I said, I just said it, though. And he said, oh, okay, well, all right, do what you want to do, but if we don't like it, you have to go put those pages back and finish the script. And I said, okay, that's a deal. So I I went back and I threw those pages out and I wrote the movie that you see, word for word. And they loved it. So they sent it to Denzel without an offer, just basically going, do you want to do this? And it was a 4th of July weekend. And I had, as a screenwriter, I've never been through this process. I had never... So I wasn't nervous or anything. I just felt, oh, this is how it goes or whatever. Right. But at some point, my manager called me, who was who gave his agent a start in the business. And he said, uh, he just called me. And he said, Denzel called him. And he said, I'm on page 50. And he said to the agent, tell me the next 50 are just as good. The agent said, they're better. And he hung up. And literally, the, the hours later, he called the producer and said, hi, this is Robert McCall. And he said, and this is not a development deal. This is the script I'm shooting. 
So what? Yeah, it never happens. It's um, it, uh, and again, I didn't go through it, so I don't know any better. I just like sure. oh. So, so he he trusts you right out of the gates. Uh, well, he loved the script, and he loved yeah. The and he liked what he read, and he didn't want to change anything. So right. Of course, the studio then wants to change everything. They they want to like make the villain bigger. And I there was a very funny story where where they insisted I write the villain bet bigger. So I did. And then we had lunch with Denzel, me and the producers and the director, Antoine. And Denzel came in and he sat down and he goes, um, I want to play the villain. And then everyone stopped. And they said, well, well, he's got all the best stuff now. Wow. And they turned to me and go, cut that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Pull it back. Pull it back, babe. Um, so, so here's the other part. So I go to Boston. Uh, to work with Antoine, who was a fantastic collaborator and, a, and a, one of the cinematic geniuses, you know, that I had just met. And I had a little aside. I don't know if you saw the three, but um, the there's there's things in the three that I learned just meeting some Navy SEALs and, and guys from that Antoine knew that I incorporated in three. So uh, we go to to Boston and I'm there and scouting and looking at, you know, the things and working on the script. And Denzel would come every day. And I was told that he's he's a first draft guy. No huh. matter what you do, he carries the first draft along because that's what he reacted to. And he he compares it. If it's better, it's okay. But if it's changed for no, just change purposes, no. So he would sit at my desk, which was a cardboard box in the middle of this production office, um, every day and we'd work, we'd go through the script every day and there would be things like what happened to the softball scene? Oh, they cut that cause they don't want to pay for the uniforms. He'd get up <laughs> and he'd walk over, disappear. He'd come back. He goes, uh, and, and, and then, so it ends and the, you know, on Friday and they're shooting on Monday. And, uh, so I'm done. Wow. Like it's all. So done. not only are, is he collaborating, he's your best advocate. Well, you know, and by the way, he, he, there's, some, there's something you learn from a, a, a great artist like Dintel because he would point to things in the script and goes, I don't understand this. How do I play that? And I would say, um, well, I don't know. Um, that's really for the reader. That's for the studio to read. Mm. I don't know what you would do with it. You do whatever you want when he goes, yeah, because you can't play an internal thing like that. You're telling me blah, blah, blah. So it was, I learned so much, but he, you know, so it was over and the producer <laughs> wandered over and he goes hey uh congratulations you're the first writer he's never fired oh like, my god oh, or replaced or whatever so oh uh, and i'm like good thing you told me at the end yeah, yeah. so um, and it, alarmed you. um we have a great shorthand and anything i do uh for him or with him we sit at his house and go through the script and talk it through and he's wonderful wow. Um, I have to say, so it's a really a privilege to work. Oh. With, well, know. and at this point, I mean, your relationship is well over a decade old. Yeah. yeah. And, and here's the thing, you know, I could trace that back to John Houston, um, who I would watch him, you know, direct a scene and he would never block it with the, tell the actors what to do. He just let them do stuff. And I would say, why, why are you, why are you letting him do that? 
And he said, well, uh, he was very well, um, they know more about the character than I do. And, uh, there's no, why, why would I hire them if I don't let them use their intellect? So wow. no, he would adjust it and say, can you not walk up that far off the set or whatever, but right. allow them to be it. And so I guess that stuck with me and the idea that someone is great. And I think he's the greatest actor of our generation wants to do something or thinks that doesn't, whatever you listen. And you learn. So it was, it's, it's been such a great ride and a privilege. So was he the same way on the Magnificent Seven? I assume you guys had a collaborative relationship there. You did. Uh, again, I was doing um, Jack Reacher at the time and uh, I mm. turned that in and Tom had said yes, which was a big surprise. Um, and they wanted me to go to London to, to work with him. And at the same time, Denzel asked, for me to come work on Magnificent Seven. Oh, what a problem to have. I know. And and the, the thing was, I had already finished Equalizer 2. So I didn't want to mess that up. So I chose Magnificent Seven and I went to his house. And there were multiple scripts on that um, at that point. And um, uh, I sat down with him. I said, well, you know, I got a problem with all of it. And he said, <laughs> what problem? And I told him, you know, what I thought. He goes, okay, do it, do it. And then the best part of it was that while we were in Louisiana and, you know, there's seven guys. So you're doing the same thing with seven actors. Right. I can't tell you again, what a great experience it was to work hand in hand with Ethan Hawke and Chris Pratt and Vince D'Onofrio um, and Denzel. And just, it just was amazing. You know, you, you helped create these characters there and make them theirs um uh so it was it's you know again just you know one of those you know master classes in, mm. in writing you know just get better when you do it. it it's so one of the obviously one of the reasons that the the whole annie thing caught my eye was just because um not only is it you know it, part of our the fabric of so many of our childhood but it genre wise it couldn't be any more different than the kinds of things you write i'm wondering can you talk a little bit about sort of your lane when it comes to writing and how if you were attracted to this genre if it just sort of fell into your focus it, it 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 fell into my focus really um uh i love annie i love musicals i i grew up you know uh and learned from mike stewart and watched mm. 42nd street and barnum be, grow from the ground up from the typewriter to the stage mm. so there's nothing better than than learning like that um uh so i i and i've always been a fan of uh, you know, I grew up in, in, you know, went to school at NYU in the seventies. So I got to watch all those revival houses of Frank Capra and John Ford, you know, mm. Billy Wilder, um, and see Scorsese, Coppola, De Palma, Spielberg, and all those guys, um, you know, kind of changing the, changing the, the fabric of cinema. So, um, those were the kind of movies I loved, but, you know, when you work in the, the business and you work for, studios you know especially as a young screenwriter you you believe that they know everything that they have big posters on the wall and they've made a bunch of movies and when they tell you you know we need a backstory or we need this you just do it and i was having a lot of trouble getting movies made um 
you know, I'd write them and then I'd do their notes and then I wouldn't hear anything. <laughs> and then one day I decided that I think I should work for directors. I think, I think that maybe that was the change in my career when I, um, I wrote a movie for Joel Silver after just the ticket. Uh, we were, we were mixing and, 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 um, scoring the movie at Warner brothers and, uh, Joel was there with Dick Donner and, um, uh, he came and gave Andy Garcia a script that he wanted him to do. And Andy gave it to me. And then Joel said, could you do stuff like that? And, you know, and I, I rewrote the script and we were going to, I was going to direct it and Andy was going to be in it with Jennifer Lopez. And then, um, Joel and, and Dick Donner had a falling out. So the project died, but I, I got to meet Dick Donner and, um, that changed everything because, um, not only was he a great filmmaker and I got to watch Lethal Weapon being shot and all that stuff like that, um, he was a big fan. So uh, hmm. after they fell out, um, I I came up with the, the idea of, of doing a movie called 16 Blocks that I was going to direct and Dick should produce it. So I went to his house and I pitched it to him. And I was about five minutes in the pitch and he stopped me and he picked up the phone. He called his wife, Lauren Schuler, and said, you got to come home and listen to this pitch. It's the best I've ever heard, except this asshole thinks he's going to direct it. <laughs> and uh, I said, oh, does that mean that you want to direct it? And he said, I died to direct it. And uh, um, I said, well, probably be a better movie if you directed it. So uh, that became our our partnership. And, um, so I finished it and, um, it turned out really, really terrific. And, um, one day I got a call from the line producer. He goes, where do you want to stay in Toronto? I go, what? He goes, Dick wants you to stay in the same place that he's staying in. I go, what? I've never been on a, on a movie set, uh, other than as a PA or, you know, you know, something like that. Craft services. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, 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 okay. And then Dick called me and said, look, we're casting the movie. I need you to come read with the actors. And I would go in and I'd read with all the actors, with Bruce and with the, all the people trying to play Eddie, who ended up being played by Mos Def. And uh, um, I had to write a letter to Mos Def to get him to do the movie and everything else. And then I went to Toronto and I was I sat next to Dick the entire time. And I, would, I, I didn't know anything, say things like, I don't know. I think you should put the cam, you know, you should put the camera lower and you go, okay. And I never had a more collaborative person who just, just, uh, valued the writer. And after we wow. finished, we came home and he called me, said, come to the editing room every day. And we'll, and we did that. And then he said, come to the previews and, come to the previews. And I just was part of the process. And I thought, well, that's when I decided, I think I, I should be a writer. I felt valued. I felt like I could, I could be a part of it without having to do two or three years of work on a movie. I could write it and somebody else could direct it and, and, and uh, I could be a part of it. So that's how it started. Um, and what a lesson in, I mean, you talk about collaboration, but you're really, I think you're just talking about being easy to work with. And I, mm. I think that people 
don't put the value on that that they should. I my my personal story with that is when I was doing morning show. I was doing morning show in LA, and before I got the job, unbeknownst to me, the program director and the host called everyone I'd ever worked with. I didn't know and said, "What's she like to work with? Is she a bitch? What's her vibe? Is she late? Does she have pain?" And thank God they all lied and said no. And yeah, I regret saying what I said. I'm sorry. I appreciate it in retrospect, but that's you. You just you. I didn't know and I didn't realize how valuable it is to just be easy to work with. And I mean, that seems like, you know, as as talented as you are and as creative as you are and as much as you understand the business, if you were just constantly butting heads with people, this wouldn't have worked. Well, I think that, listen, uh, I, you know, I, I sit on the set and I, I, I write things and I see the changes and things like that. And it's, it's sometimes infuriating or depressing or, yeah. dis- you know, uh, stressful and things like that but it's a collaborative medium and you know if you want to have some say um you have to realize that you know you're not the only voice at a certain point and that and that you know your be- your best work is the foundational part of it so i would say like in equalizer 3 there's not a scene in the movie i hadn't write are the scenes how i envisioned them not not always but but at the same time you know, that's the privilege of the director who, right. who, whose movie is, is now the pilot of the movie. So, so you have to, you have to accept that yeah. uh, and, and then allow yourself to just be there to maybe just every so often, just, just tilt it another way. And that's the best you mm-hmm. can do. And, um, and in the end, you know, you have to, you have to, you know, and I, I see a lot of screenwriters are very hold on to their things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand the feeling, but it's not the reality. Right. You, you've probably been asked a version of this question, but uh, not to be too reductive, but between Equalizer series and Expendables and Jack Reacher, which you mentioned, and Lethal Weapon, et cetera, et cetera. How, as a writer, do you sort of make old guys look cool and badass. That seems to be a real specialty, a real niche that you're, uh, you're living uh, into. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 here's, the, here's the only answer I could give. I don't write action that's not, that's not actually acting action. Um, mm. You read the script of, the, of, the, of those things and those guys. They're all, it's almost like an acting thing it's a personal thing like i like i remember writing the uh, russian scene in the first equalizer and i wrote it as you see it pretty much um antoine stamp is all over it but i wrote it where you go into his eye and you see the room disappear and you only see the weapons and i'm thinking no one can ever make this no one can shoot this but it's good for the studio to read it yeah, and sure. get all excited because it's very um it's not your normal as, as Tom Rothman liked to say, punching and kicking, P and K, you know, just, you know, because no one reads the action most of the time. Right. You skip down, you go, oh, he beats him up, and then you go in the next. <laughs> um, I don't write it like that. I write it as a, as a scene. Um, and everything is visual. Um, it's not, it's not just description. It's emotion and things like that. So I think that maybe that's, part of the appeal because i also take into account that who who's doing it mm, that's a good point you know it's not it's not some 27 year old jumping and running over buildings and things like that which and also i learned enough watching hitchcock and 
uh, all those great directors, that if you don't care about the character, you're not invested and engaged with the character, you can have them jump off a cliff and you don't care. But as yeah. you care about them, they can walk down a hallway and you could be on the edge of your seat. So I think that that's uh, the lesson I, I took from early days, which is, you know, once once you're once you want to be with this guy and you and you root for this guy and you're worried about this guy, you have such bigger leeway. You don't have mm-hmm. to do giant white noise, mm-hmm. you know, spectacular action. You just really have to put them in situations where you're, you know, it's tense and suspenseful. I'm glad you mentioned, I, I, I didn't think about it, but you're right. Well, obviously you're right. But like, I didn't think about it where you have to consider who you're writing for and what you're asking them to do. Like, I'm a big fan of the James Bond series, but there were some movies that are asking Sean Connery and especially Roger Moore towards the end to do things that didn't make sense right. for that actor, frankly. Yes. And the movie suffered as a result. It does. I think I think we all sit there and whether we acknowledge it overtly or not we feel it we feel it like it's a little less than um Mm -hmm. so in equalizer three i was very aware of where denzel's in his career and where what what this trilogy was going to be and where it should end and it wasn't going to end with a gigantic you know like the first one uh in home depot it wasn't going to end like that it was going to end um much more personally and everything was very up close and personal um I didn't require, it didn't require, you know, uh, leaps and fate and, and, and feats of daring do that you just wouldn't believe uh, something like Denzel could do. Well, and by the third one, you know, it's like fans are already invested. Like we get, yeah. we get the, we, we get the action. You had us at the action. Now it's like, can we please get to know him and make him yep. part of our lives? Yep. It was always, it's interesting because it never was going to be a franchise. Then very clear. He's doing one. He never did a franchise. He never did a sequel. So ever in his entire career, who has no interest in doing anything more than the first one. Um, I, in my mind thought I knew what the other two were. If if they ever got there, Um, I knew the journey he was going to take. It was finding his purpose in the first movie Mm. And again, it was, you didn't have to do a second movie, but finding his peace in the, in the second movie with his past and then finding his place, you know, cause we really want him to be happy. We want him to be, you know, this guy's done so much for so many people that we want him to find community to connect with. So, um, that was, you know, the, the journey I had imagined for this guy. Brian, how much did you spend on film school? Uh, way too much, apparently. Although because, now I like the idea of Denzel revisiting some of his earlier works and actually making franchises out of them. We could have Glory 2, even yeah. more Glory. Training glory. Week. Yeah, yeah the, the second book of Eli. You know, there, there's a whole there's a whole uh, repertoire there. Malcolm Double X. Mel always would tell me, because, you know, they keep calling about Safe House 2. I keep telling them I'm dead. And they keep saying... <laughs> We can work around that. Yeah, when has that ever stopped a movie? I was smart enough not to do that. So there you go. This is putting you on the spot. Um, but I'm just it just while you were talking, it made me curious. Do you have a go to if you could say what is your go to favorite movie that you wrote? And what is your go to favorite movie just as a consumer, as a movie lover? Mm, 
All and right. I know I'm putting you on the spot. So just pick pick one of the 10 that I'm sure you. Well, I mean, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, think that the um, 16 blocks is my favorite experience. Right. I think the best script was the mechanic, oddly mm-hmm. enough. Such a um, uh, uh, dark, ugly world that I don't like to visit. But it's <laughs> very well written and I think um, works uh, within the world that it's in. So it's a hard one to do. Um, and then... Third was Equalizer because it was taking a title and reimagining the entire thing. There's not a thing from the TV show other than the title. So that you fought against several times that you said not interested. Yeah, I did. I did. I I, again, you know, it's really, you know, um, not the show that's on now, but which is more soap opera show, but which I like. But um, the original show was, you know, a a equalizing thing a week, you know, every he would read an ad in the newspaper and help somebody, you know, and they weren't always people that needed help. Right. Were good characters. I chose to make it always only people that could not help themselves. They had no access to help. Mm. Um, that's a big difference. And I think that's the appeal of the character. These people can't call a lawyer, can't call the police, right. get justice. And all he does is create a path for you to continue. He doesn't give you what you want. He gives you the opportunity to get what you want. And so that's all we ask for. And it's a wish fulfillment movie because you wish he lived next door to you or, uh, you know, in your apartment building. Because then, you know, when you have trouble with your landlord, he'll take care of it. So. Right. <laughs> so, um, the other, let's see, the other movies is odd. I love whimsical I love I love hopeful movies. Um, mm-hmm. I will I'll name two right off the top of my head. I mean, other than you know, great movies like Citizen Kane and Godfather, and sure. um, uh, that's a, a given. Bunch of John Ford movies, and and my who I met Frank Capra, a lot of his movies, which are you know movies that you know hard to do today, but um, I think are brilliant. Um, two movies uh, immersed me. Oh, three. One was Melvin and Howard by Jonathan Demme um, about it's a true story about a guy who was found out to be in Howard Hughes's will, um, who was just a regular guy. It's a great movie about wow. the dream and and um, uh, and then my favorite movie I can watch over and over and over again is Bill Forsyth's Local Hero, which um, I borrowed some of of that for the equalizer three town and and the people there um and then there's a movie by walter salas called central station um only because it's um life affirming and yet it's one of the most reprehensible characters when you meet this woman in a train station who writes letters for indigenous you know people who can't write and 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 uh uh and she's she is just the worst person in the world. And yet by the end of the movie, somehow it she's redeemed. And I, I find that, I find that very uh, moving and hopeful. Oh. And I like movies like that. I like, I, I, like wrote those down. I like movies that, that tell me that there's good and hope in the world. So, and, and that, y- that everyone can be redeemed, God willing. It, I think I think Equalizer Three is a redemption tale. It's not a vengeance tale. It's not a 
it's 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 sort of the remaking of a man um, who who questions his his path on life and is. I always looked at it as as you know this incident in the first five minutes of the movie changes the course of his life, and he's able to see the the this this different life for himself that only that incident or whether you call it a spiritual incident or godlike intervention or whatever you want to call it um allows him to uh, you know get out of the world that he's in and well this is such a it, it, open talking to you has opened my eyes so much because for anyone who says eh, action's not really my thing or the, you, then watch watch richard wank movies mm-hmm. because this story is is the foremost important part of all of this, like you said, the, the punching and kicking, it made me laugh because, of course, there's a shorthand for that kind of thing. But the the beautiful through line, for these movies that they are actable and they are relatable and they are beautiful. And oh, by the way, there just might be some heart pounding moments like yeah. these are the yeah. movies to watch. You can you can do both if you if yeah. you you create a character or a, a bunch of characters that you um, can relate to. Um, and, and it's the first thing I do. I don't action, you know, like I said, I, I figured out a way to write it where it's readable and doable and it's different. Um, but still people, you know, in my, in my family questions, my sanity sometimes (laughs) that I sit and create. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that there's nothing that works unless you, you want to watch you know, the, these people and these characters. Well said. Richard, fantastic. Thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I'm so uh, grateful you guys have, have our, our uh, re, uh, you know, redoing this magazine and getting it out there and doing all this stuff. It's, 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 it's again, it's, 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 it's moving and very hopeful to me. So oh, that's uh, guys, so nice. you guys are doing. Thank, Thank you. you. And that's, yeah, we just, you know, it, it just spreading the reach and, um, you know, diving into new mediums and, and we're so happy to be here. When I go to Equalizer in the theater, I always want to look my best and wear my best jewelry. So of course, that's when I wear my Alex and Ani. Let's hear from them real quick. Jewelry is having a big moment right now. And with hundreds of products popping up in your feed every day, it can be hard to find a brand you trust. Alex and Ani has been creating meaningful jewelry for over 20 years, designing pieces that connect you with all of life's important moments. With an emphasis on value, there's truly something for everyone. You might be most familiar with their signature charm bangle. This bracelet literally created the category of meaningful jewelry and had you stacking charms from your wrist to your elbow. This piece is an icon for a reason, completely size and Each bracelet is adorned with a symbol designed to tell your story and express your unique style. Beyond the bangle, you'll find stylish, affordable jewelry for every occasion, from classic pieces to bold statement looks. Don't know where to start? Alex and Ani makes it easy to unpack the trends you're after and sprinkle in your personality too. Each piece comes with a personalized message and meaning, truly making it the perfect gift. You can take comfort in knowing that you're shopping with a socially conscious brand as well. To date, Alex and Ani has donated over $60 
$15 million to nonprofits worldwide, connecting fashion and philanthropy in an easy, fun, affordable way. Visit alexandani.com right now to discover the confidence that comes with a perfectly accessorized piece of jewelry. Right now, Alex and Ani is offering our audience 20% off with code MIDAS at checkout. Again, head to alexandani.com. That's A-L-E-X-A-N-D-A-N-I.com and use code MIDAS at checkout for 20% off your order. So yeah, you want to, you want, you know, you're going to the theater. Makes sense. Act like it. I think so. Yes. All right, Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Hope to have you back soon and maybe talk about Craven the Hunter, all your hard work on that. Oh, you guys are great. Thank you for having me. This was right, fun. Cool. Talk to you soon. Take it easy. Nice Thanks. to meet you. Thank you for listening to The Brian and Gina Show. To get in touch with the hosts or buy their books, hit them up at, at @baldbrian and at Gina Grad on Twitter and Instagram or by email at podcasts at lamag.com. To get connected with LA Magazine, hit them up at, at @lamag on Twitter and Instagram. Talk soon. 